This is episode 279 with Head of Data Science at Scribd, Kevin Perko. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by our very own data science conference, Data Science Go 2019. There are plenty of data science conferences out there. Data Science Go is not your ordinary data science event. This is a conference dedicated to career advancement. We have three days of immersive talks, panels, and training sessions designed to teach, inspire, and guide you. There's three separate uh, career tracks involved. So whether you're a beginner, a practitioner, or a manager, you can find a career track for you and select the right talks to advance your career. We're expecting 40 speakers, that's 40 speakers to join us for Data Science Go 2019. And just to give you a taste of what to expect, here are some of the speakers that we had in the previous years. Creator of Makeover Monday, Andy Kriebel. AI thought leader, Ben Taylor. Data science influencer, Randy Lau. Data science mentor, Kristen Kerrer. Founder of Visual Cinnamon, Nadi Bremer technology futurist Publis Holman, and many, many more. Uh, this year, we will have over 800 attendees from beginners to data scientists to managers and leaders. So there will be plenty of networking opportunities with our attendees and speakers, and you don't want to miss out on that. That's the best way to grow your data science network and grow your career. And as a bonus, there will be a track for executives. So if you're executive listening to this, Check this out. Last year at Data Science Go X, which is our special track for executives, we had key business decision makers from Ellie Mae, Levi Strauss, Dell, Red Bull, and more. So whether you're a beginner, practitioner, manager, or executive, Data Science Go is for you. Data Science Go is happening on the 27th, 28th, 29th of September 2019 in San Diego. Don't miss out. You can get your tickets at www.datasciencego.com. I would personally love to see you there, network with you, and help inspire your career or progress your business into the space of data science. Once again, the website is www.datasciencego.com, and I'll see you there. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Today, we've got a super exciting guest, another speaker who will be joining us for Data Science Go 2019 at the end of September this year. So if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, check out www.datasensego.com. And today we have Kevin Perko. Kevin is the head of data science at uh, Scribd, and he's leading a team of approximately 13 data scientists between San Francisco and Toronto. And we had a fantastic chat today. So here are a couple of things that you will take away from this conversation. So you'll learn what it's like to be a data science manager or a data science leader and what it's like to manage a team and more so two teams in two different locations and how that is different to actually doing the technical work. So if you're thinking of progressing as a data scientist to a data science manager or to a head of data science, this will be very valuable for you. Also, you'll learn about the book genome project that they're doing at Script, which is a very exciting undertaking. Uh, you'll learn what it's like when a company sees data science as a product as opposed to an auxiliary function. Uh, if you're a business owner or an executive, you'll learn a very valuable concept of decentralized or embedded teams versus core data science team. So what's the difference when your data scientists or machine learning experts are embedded throughout your organization versus when they're in one core uh, centralized team of data scientists. What are the advantages and disadvantages of each approach and what uh, stage of the business uh, should you be doing each one in and what should you be aiming for? And finally, if you are in Toronto or San Francisco and you're looking for a job or considering a, a new role in data science, then stay tuned for this podcast because Kevin will announce that they're hiring and you might just like this company and might just want to check them out. 
On that note, very exciting podcast coming up. Can't wait for you to check it out. Let's get straight into it. Without further ado, I bring to you Kevin Perko, Head of Data Science at Script. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show here today with my lovely guest, Kevin Perko, calling in from San Francisco. Kevin, how are you going? Doing great. I'm doing great. Man, it was fun chatting just now about like a book and, you know, you haven't written one yet. If you were to write a book, what would it be about? Oh, that's a great question. If I was going to write a book, I think I would... I would focus on kind of how interdisciplinary data science is mm. and how that is really kind of what makes it come alive. Like you've got elements from psychology, you've got like these general things around just being curious and you've got the ability to like program and build models and sort of represent the world. And I think all of those things kind of come together in this nice sort of like systems thinking, complex systems type fields of study that people don't usually study who do data science. But I also think it's why people who do study like something like physics, which is literally the building blocks of the universe, tend to do really well in data yeah. science. So I think my book would be trying to capture more of these elements and kind of interweaving them and showing like how these things are building on each other and why like, you know, neural networks are kind of something that's really interesting, comes out of something from like 70s really, even before that. And it's not like a new thing, but just to give people this sort of sense of understanding on how everything is interrelated and it's all sort towards like understanding how we like model these things and that, you know, while people like to talk about AI, there isn't really anything that approaches general intelligence yet. Mm -hmm. Still really mapping these functions to output values. Um, but I think it's like understanding the systems in which these operate are really, really interesting. Very, very true. And do you feel that data science kind of came together as a, a, a chain of development, not even chain, like a, um, a group of developments in different fields. You know, there's elements of data science that come from economics. There's elements that come from physics, as you mentioned. There's elements that come from neural networks and IT. There's elements that come from mathematics, even biology, you know, like some mm -hmm. of the statistical apparatus, especially in R, originally came from uh, A-B testing and uh, random sampling in biology or uh, in medicine. So do you have this feeling that data science kind of like right now it's a separate science and there's arguments to support that, but originally it, it independently grew in all these different fields. Right. Right. Absolutely. Like I think a good corollary for this is that if I was going to recommend what somebody should study, I would rather see them study computational like biology, mathematics, physics, as opposed to data science itself. Because mm. then you're kind of removing yourself from the actual subject you're studying and data science is always applied. We're never just like, at least in industry, thinking about how to make gradient descent like more efficient, thinking about how to apply it to solve a problem. So when you come up from a computational X area, that's really like what you're going to be doing. I see sometimes people come out of the sort of generic data science programs like, I want to go do NLP. And it's like, what does that, like, what problems do you want to solve with that? Like, why do you care about having this tool so you can leverage it for like solving a problem, whether it's in healthcare or physics or business. Mm. So I think that's where it gets really exciting is when you kind of mix those applied fields together. Like somebody, I'm, I'm kind of remembering here, somebody was studying glaciology and they were actually applying, you know, data science methods and they were able to like map, you know, how glaciers are moving where people previously hadn't been able to. And it's like, that's where data science really shines. And so that's where it gets really exciting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think that, that that's kind of like my, my thing is that I almost think it shouldn't, it can't be a separate thing. It has to be in all of these things because it can help all of these, uh, all of these various fields, you know, move forward faster as opposed to just itself. Mm -hmm. Wow. Very interesting perspective. So applied data science, great way to get started into the field. And I guess if you combine it with something that you're passionate about, something that like uh, somebody who's doing glaciology has to be excited about glaciers and some kind of there has to be some story behind it why they're doing it i guess if you do it that way you get the extra boost of seeing how applying data science to this field that you're very interested in can make massive progress and massive impact in that field absolutely absolutely and i i think that's really where people kind of drive breakthroughs is when they bring a couple of different fields together 
And data science is a great one that you can bring it to almost any field. It can help you rather right. infer, compute, figure out what is the true structure of all of these different areas. And that's really powerful. And there's not kind of a lot of fields that do that. Um, but if you're just focusing on like, where do I run around and kind of like apply data science and algorithms to, you get a lot of, you know, interesting things. You see a lot of kind of the, the voice to face or the deep fakes and all this stuff is kind of people like, well, there's social media and I can get a lot of press if I do this thing that's going to freak people out. And so then that's what happens. And we ended up building something that kind of scares people about AI and also it has of <laughs> debatable social value mm -hmm. rather than like really pursuing, trying to like build, you know, breakthroughs in some hard sciences, which is, you know, really exciting and really valuable to the world. So mm -hmm. that's gotcha. where I see the trade-off. So what, what's your story? Like, how did you get into the space of data science? What did you study? So I actually studied finance. Hmm. And, and for me, data science really happened to me. I was always interested in numbers and thinking about numbers. And I picked up programming uh, when I was younger, sort of on and off. And then in school, kind of switched over to like, you know, I really just want to do banking because I love like the stock market because it had so many like numbers associated with it and all these you know, future value of money and all these kinds of things that are really interesting. And I didn't have like, for me, like it didn't click. I'm like, oh, I should do computer science yet. Mm. So then I got out and I was like, I definitely should have done computer science. And just ended up, I was like, I just got to work at a tech company, which I did, did a variety of roles there. And I got into like building an application. It was powered by data though. So I got to interact with the data. I was building what we would call ETL pipelines now, but nobody really had a name for it then. And my title is from load, right? Hmm? Extract, transform, load. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and nobody really knew like what the next thing, nobody was like, let's do analysis on top of it. We did a little, like a very light statistical analysis. You know, I did a little work with SEO because we had more of a long tail application. And from there, I basically knew that I wanted to do more of this, but I still didn't really have a name for it. Mm -hmm. And so people are thinking, you know, it was FPNA, which is definitely not what it was because it was much more, you know, computer science oriented. Mm -hmm. And roughly kind of around this time, Facebook started to come out. The term data scientist got popularized, but it was only for PhDs at this point mm -hmm. for the most part. And they were solving these like really, really massive problems at scale uh, that didn't previously exist. And they also had a ton of users. And so all these like unique problems that most startups didn't have, so they couldn't really do this. So I kind of went from there to the next company. I, again, did something similar, but I was closer to the analytics this time. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of gave me the freedom to do all this analyses, finally, you know, get into building some models, doing some fraud modeling, and that's some graph analysis. And that's really where I was like, oh, this is incredible. You know, booting up Gephi first time and like loading a graph in there and really seeing the mm -hmm. visual representation of these relationships and how you could walk down the node and sort of see how people are related and how fraud circles form fascinating stuff. So this kind of like hooked me in and I was like, I again need to do more. Like I'm going in the right area, even though I'm not really sure what it is. Now it's finally called data science, really diving into learning Python, and everything else I need to. So from there, then I really, you know, I worked for a gaming company and I was like, all right, it's like a lab, right? It's like a science lab for running experiments. Uh, um, really interesting. Don't necessarily feel that great, but you learn a ton about how people respond very quickly to incentives. Uh, and gameplay function and gameplay economies and all of these really interesting areas. So that that's kind of been my path. And right. And then from there I've, I've continued on at Scribd. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was kind of this route that I was sort of on and I didn't know it. And then the industry just showed up and I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. Fantastic. Uh, right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. and Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very interesting story. So uh, you've been uh, now at Scribd for what, like over five years. That's right. Five and a half years. That's really cool. So you start off as a data scientist, data science manager, and now you're head of data science. Tell us what that feels like. It's great. It's great. I mean, it, it's both exciting to be able to grow at a company and watch the company grow while you're there. Uh, it's been a, a total kind of like mindset shift when you're going in and doing the like ground level work versus having a team of people, you know, and we're in San Francisco and Toronto now in terms of the data science team. And that's just kind of have to, like most of my career has been sort of figuring out how to do things, you know, while I'm doing them. And so managing a team is no different. You really have to sort of change your job every six months to a year. Mm -hmm. And nobody tells you that you're supposed to do that, but you definitely are. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you're going to get stuck. So what, for what example, do you mean change your job? What I mean is like as a 
data scientist, right? You're really thinking about like the models and the business problems you're solving. And as a manager, you're now you have to think about how you help people solve those problems mm. and what the communication around that looks like and how you're you know, setting expectations and what you're delivering. And then once you're kind of managing the whole team, you have to think like, what are we not even thinking about? You know, what's the culture? How do we help? How do I kind of delegate? So other, so I have more people on the team who are aligned with me and thinking the same way and they can kind of like be, I can be a multiplier effect because mm -hmm. I can't be everywhere anymore. Mm -hmm. So most of my day is kind of like sitting in meetings from 10.30 to 3.30, <laughs> very typical day. Mm -hmm. And whether I'm doing interviewing, you know, or meeting with other PMs or being with other executives, all of those things kind of add up plus one-on-ones for the team. And so the day just, just kind of fly by. So I can't really be there, you know, providing any sort of technical leadership. So I kind of have to build that out on the team. So the team kind of has some senior people who can do that. So these are sort of, sort of things where I'm like, okay, well now I had to change my job. Previously I was much more involved in this. Now I'm not involved at all. Now I'm like working, you know, with the team in Toronto, really making sure that they get up and running and we're sort of working on newer things. Like we're working on building a machine learning platform internally. Now we're going to use some tools for this. We're not going to write the whole things ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's like a whole new area of, okay, okay, now we really have to think about this. And we really, really want to focus on getting everybody more into the full stack data science uh, side. So we've always sort of had a, you know, the full stack data science term that we've used internally of like how we think about, it, we kind of go end to end, mm -hmm. but this is like, we want to go take that to the next level where we're like working with Scala or really being able to productionalize anything at any point. So really kind of pushing the team in that direction to sort of enable new opportunities for us. Very cool. And how big is the team right now? So the team, including myself is 13 people right now. Okay. Gotcha. 13 across, uh, Toronto, was it? And San Francisco? That's right. Toronto and San Francisco. Very cool. I, I think this would be a good uh, segue or time to mention a, a few things about Scribd, I guess. Um, tell us a bit, what is Scribd and uh, what, what kind of product services does the company offer? Right. So Scribd is a reading subscription service. Uh, so it's $8.99 a month and you get access to books, audiobooks, sheet music, articles, as well as user uploaded content, which could be really anything, letters of recommendations, people's, you know, physics theses that they've published. Um, and just a wide collection, you know, game strategy guides of content that people have decided to upload on the internet. And so Scribd enables you to get access to that. Oh, nice. And so what kind of data would you be working with uh, or does your team work with on a daily basis? So we really work with kind of, I, I think of like a couple different types of data. One is sort of like the application level data, whereas like who's paying us, where are they from, all of that kind of like demographic type information, you know, what devices are they on, et cetera. And then you have the sort of user interaction event stream data of like, what did they do, right? What did we show them? Um, and then how did they interact with that? Mm -hmm. And how does that kind of mix with what we know about whether or not they're logged in or logged out or a paying subscriber, what they've done in the past, you know, what other people have done. Um, as, and so that's kind of like one sort of part of it. And then the other part is understanding the content, right? So all of the books and audiobooks and user generated content that we have that people have uploaded really understanding what that is, what language is that in, right? What categories are they? So for books, publishers typically, typically provide us with categories, whereas for documents, uh, users do not provide us with any information. So it's up to us to sort of decide, okay, what is this document actually about and how should we use that information when we're, you know, building a search index to serve search results or showing recommendations. Okay. Very, very, um, diverse uh to our two diverse areas you know in user interaction and understanding how they use the platform and also understanding the content what would uh, a typical project look like for your data science team that's a great question so i'm actually going to just use a project that we're doing right now yep somebody identified our success metric which is our target for our gbm so mm -hmm. for search for re-ranking items once all the candidate sets are generated. Um, so think rows of books, audiobooks, documents. Then it kind of goes into this GBM and it decides how should I actually rank these items, right? Within each module. And that is really, today, a lot of that is, after all the routing and candidate generation happens, it's all based on historical data for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so we, our best approximation is to try to understand how that, those interactions 
correlate with retention. So for our business, that's what we want to optimize for right now. Mm -hmm. And so one of the data scientists said, you know, this previous success metric, we did really great work on it and I think we can make it better. Mm -hmm. So they kind of mapped out the project. What should that be? They did like the whole like analyses they presented to the team. They got a bunch of feedback. They continued to improve the success metric and they're continuing now to get it into production. And once they do that, then the next step will be to retrain it, uh, to retrain the GBM so that we can actually see, is this, you know, better? Because obviously it's easy to sort of say, well, offline it looks better, right? Like we, we've reduced our mean squared error, but that doesn't really mean anything if we didn't make the user experience better. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of why I say like, there's not really a typical project, but this would be a good representation of like, okay, there's some clear variables that you want to optimize for. Maybe somebody is giving you the project or you're creating it, and then you need to kind of go down, break them down, figure out how to map, you know, represent them. It's a, a pretty collaborative environment, so you're going to go present it. You're definitely going to take some feedback. I think that always sort of hardens the project, gets you to question your assumptions, and then you know, you've got to go and write the code to get it shipped out so we can actually use it in the product. Okay, gotcha. So GBM is gradient boosting machine, is that right? Right. And why do you use a GBM in, in this specific example? Is there any reasons for that? You know, I would say, honestly, there's not a great reason we we sort of inherited this model uh there was a kind of a previous search team and this was the you know the model place we trained it it worked the best way doing this okay. so kind of our, our bigger uh contributions have been to improve the success metric that it gets trained against mm -hmm. okay gotcha and so with a team of 13 data scientists uh well including yourself uh, do you find that you have multiple projects going on at the same time how, how many projects are is the team involved in approximately? There's so many people, it's hard for me to even pull that number out of the air. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there is a lot going on at any one time. How do you um, keep track of everything? How, yeah, that's a great question. So we have a couple kind of support structures for that. We have squads. Um, so people that are working on kind of product facing squads, they have somebody that they're working with like a product manager and a technical uh, project manager we're working on, you know, what's the task flow, how, you know, what are we shipping, you know, what are the deadlines on all that kind of stuff. And so we get some similar apparatus on the search and recommendations teams so that I don't have to like be responsible for all of it. Uh, Cause it, it's too much for one person to sort of, you know, make sure everything is, is on track and all the deadlines are being met. Um, so that really helps a lot. Uh, the other thing is to just, kind of have uh, beyond individual projects is having sort of higher level goals that you're, or higher level targets for the quarter that you want to move towards. Mm -hmm. So those are easier to check in on rather than a specific, okay, did we analyze this test? Did we learn from this test? Okay, gotcha. Um, so you probably have like managers in the team as well who take on you know, some of the responsibility that then report to you. Right, right. We've got a manager out in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Um, and uh, you mentioned you guys are hiring at this stage. So uh, if anybody listening is interested, what's the best way for them to apply? Yes, we're hiring in San Francisco and Toronto. And the best way to apply is to go to the jobs page, mm. I would say. And just in the cover letter, you know, mention that you listen to the podcast and you know, I'll see that. I actually review all of the applications uh, oh. that come in. I'm, I'm very passionate about hiring, you know, the best people I possibly can. And by reviewing like all the applications that come in, I can kind of take more risks and really see, you know, if somebody is showing something that, that someone else who's looking for a very specific profile may not be able to pick up on. Nice. And by listening to this podcast, obviously people are already ahead of the game. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thank you for that. And guys, uh, girls, everybody, uh, ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen listening, if you're interested, if you're in Toronto, San Francisco, make sure to check out Scribd. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. So you're coming, which is very exciting. I'm excited to announce this to our listeners. You're coming to Data Science Go this September 2019 and uh, 27, 28, 29 September. And you're doing a keynote. Super pumped about that. Congrats. I, like, I can't wait to hear a keynote and meet you in person over there. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that. This will be my first keynote. So it's a very exciting experience for me as well. That's awesome. So tell us what is this keynote going to be about? Can you give us like a quick... Um, I don't know, maybe preview or some 
uh, spoilers about what you're going to be talking. Well, I can't give away any spoilers, of course. <laughs> In terms of a preview, what, what I'm going to focus on is kind of two things. I want to get people generally excited about you know, what's happening in data science as well as how that's intersecting with what we're doing at Scribd. And I think one of the best ways I can do that is to talk about an initiative we have internally around learning how to represent our content better, which we're calling the book genome. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's really to take, you know, obviously taking from like the music genome from Pandora from way back and applying that to books uh, at scale, which some companies have done. I don't know if anybody's used the term book genome, but we really want to like think about how we represent our content. And I want to you know, talk about how we're doing that, how that's going to enable really amazing things for our users and for data science in general, as well as kind of how that intersects with like a curiosity culture. So Eric Colson at Stitch Fix totally has written lots of very good articles on this. And I really am trying to bring that, you know, into my team, into my organization and intersect these things because there's so much opportunity in data science that there's no way that like top down, you can see all the opportunities and correctly allocate all the resources. You want people on the ground being curious, asking questions, saying, hey, actually, I actually have a couple extra hours and I'm going to see if you know, this variable is correlated with this variable or if I can you know, map this out with a regression or a neural network or whatever it happens to be. And if we can learn something new, and I really believe that that'll add much more value to the business than us trying to pick the best projects every single time. Mm -hmm. All right. So I haven't heard of this uh, music genome project. Can you tell us what is the, what is the end goal of the book genome? What, what does so, it look like? The end goal is for us to really understand books on a deep level. Mm -hmm. So when you, like, when you talk about a book, right, you talk about books that you enjoy, you say things like, oh, you know, it moved really slow or you know, maybe it was really like dense, like very, what I say, monosyllabic words, lots of technical jargon going on. You don't necessarily say like, okay, well, it was like a, a front list book. Like mm -hmm. a, for anybody who's not familiar with that, like that's a book that's come out in the last year. Publishers are, you know, they care a lot about that. That's where a lot of their money comes from. We think about a lot, a lot of this internally and all of these things, but readers don't think about that necessarily. They're thinking about, I'm reading a book that people are talking about. I'm reading a book that is relevant in the media or that my friends recommended or that's a murder mystery and I love murder mysteries and it's, it has these elements that I like. And so we want to take those, when people are saying these kind of ambiguous and vague words, these elements that I like, like what are those elements? Is it dystopia? 1984 is definitely a dystopia. So if you read that, like, what are you interested in learning? If we can like represent dystopia as an embedding, how can we relate that to other books? And then understand that like, you're not just going to read dystopias. <laughs> You'll have a very depressed outlook on the world if you do that. And that's just like a, not a thing because lots of recommender systems, right? They want to find similar two items, but we need to like introduce this serendipity. It's really going to become like a sequence type model. Because people, like, even if you read a data science book and you're getting into data science, you don't only read data science books because that, again, will kind of, like, drain your, your brain power there. Mm -hmm. You have to sort of recharge with something else, whether it's a biography or a science fiction book. And when you re read those, not only do they kind of go together in a sequence, but you have specific elements you like about your science fiction books. Like, to you, it's less about science fiction, and maybe it's more about dystopia plus science fiction plus, you know, a futuristic setting. Mm-hmm. And so we want to be able to represent that in words that we can both share with our readers on why they were recommended this book and what we know about this book and to help them find other books. So whereas today you may browse by a genre, perhaps in the future you could browse by something more stylistic, like, you know, books set in London or fast paced books or easy reads for the weekend. Mm, gotcha. So uh, for instance, like your example with the, science fiction, somebody might be interested in, like they're picking up science fiction book after science fiction book, but really deep down inside what they're like might be a um, uh, certain type of character, like a character, like the, the lead character is, um, uh, has a certain background or they are uh, passionate about certain things or the way, the manner that they, uh, how they are heroic or things like that. And really, they, the, the reader might not even know this about themselves. They just happen to be picking up these books and liking them based on other people's recommendations. And they can't really express that in words. So I guess my, what I was going to ask is, are you going to look for this information for, 
from people? Like, are you going to get people to like complete a quick survey after they finish a book? What did they like about it? Or are you going to have um, some natural linguistics pro language processing, some uh, AI or machine learning that's going to go through the book and actually look for these gems or these parameters inside autonomously? Right, right. So the current approach that we're thinking is given that we get a lot of good publisher data, we'll start to build it. And they have, and this includes some kind of human curated keywords like dystopia mm -hmm. uh, that's associated with 1984. So we can start to train on those words and kind of build and sort of understand how that represents across, we'll call them like words because we want to kind of get it more into a tree. It's much more of a graph system. It's we don't want to think of it as a flat system. Like dystopia has a relationship to the environment, right? And in cooking, right? So it's not very related to cooking, but if you just have a flat group, you know, bank of words, it doesn't really mean anything. Mm -hmm. um, but when you start putting them in a graph and it's a little bit more directed, then, oh, you can see cooking is way over here and you've got your werewolf romance way over here. And those things aren't really related, but actually your dystopia, which could kind of go either way is maybe much closer to this werewolf, hypothetical werewolf romance mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And so being able to understand those things is much more valuable because that's how people think about the books. They're not putting these hard boundaries on them like we tend to do when we model them out and we're like, oh, this is cooking or then that, and that's not that. And so they would never want that. And it's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, the world is a little bit more complicated and subtle than that. And by bringing this out, we'll really be able to get at the heart of what people want. Um, and like, I, I think you kind of brought up like, it's going to be a two-step process, right? So we're going to be bootstrapping it. We haven't like planned on doing a survey, but that's a great idea. Honestly, I might steal that. <laughs> sure. Because like you're saying, like we don't necessarily have the language to represent the things that we want to today. So we're going to have to go figure out what that's going to look like. Mm -hmm. So it makes a lot of sense. It'll be a collaboration with the data we get, the data we're able to acquire, how we're able to you know, learn things internally, as well as what our users tell us. Gotcha. And how is this, um, is it going to be similar to the Netflix uh, recommender system? I mean, I would say no at a high level, right? All recommender systems have this, this they share similarities. Yeah. Um, given that, you know, we're, we're in the process of building it, I, I wouldn't really, you know, be able to say. Mm -hmm. I think that the bigger goal of like extracting the metadata and learning how to represent it, that's very similar to what Netflix did. Mm -hmm. I think they actually had like rooms of people watching movies at one point, like labeling them. Yeah. So we're, we're not there yet to have rooms of people reading books. Yeah. <laughs> it also takes a, a lot longer time. So I'm not sure if that's feasible. Gotcha. So okay. We're going to continue to like try to increase our sophistication. So yes, I'm sure we'll be, be using similar methods uh, that Netflix has pioneered. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Very, very interesting. And um, yeah, it looks like you're going to have a lot of, algorithms that you're going to be trying out how, how what, what's your view on that how's your approach going to be which which model which algorithm is going to be the best are you going to just try out a lot of things or you already have some things in mind yeah that's a great question i, I feel like i'm i sort of have two views one is that i'm agnostic right mm -hmm. if you use cfidf and that represents the problem and solves it then you should always use the simplest tool for the job mm-hmm my second view is that a lot of the things we're seeing uh, with these kind of next generation language models that's coming out with like BERT and ExcelNet, and I haven't even had enough time to dig into them as much as I'd like, mm -hmm. but I can see that their, their ability to represent language is incredible, as well as OpenAI's uh, model that they only re released a small version of it that was, I believe it was writing, you know, articles. It was able to, do, it did too good of a job at producing fake news, basically. So they mm -hmm. didn't want to release the full model, but then they understood within, you know, a certain amount of time people would be able to recreate it. Mm -hmm. So they were just sort of buying some time, hopefully, before they unleash this thing on the world, which is nice to see somebody having a thoughtfulness that, hey, this thing could actually be used mm -hmm. for, for bad, bad things. Um, so I think a lot of those models will definitely come in here because they will enable us to represent things in really interesting ways that we may not think about. I think the simpler approach is nicer in the sense that it lets you actually say, hey, we extracted this part of the book and that means this. Mm -hmm. So that's really valuable, that interpretability piece. And that being said, neural networks are starting to get that. People are doing active research. They're starting to say, okay, this is actually you know, what it learned. This is how it represented it. This is you know your pixels that it took out and learned. So then you start to understand, oh, this is why when we turn a bus on its side, 
now it may think that it's a zebra instead of a bus because it just learned like two pixels in the image. And so there's a huge risk that when things change slightly, you get very, very wrong outcomes from the, these neural network type models. So that's why I like this idea of having a mix of us really deeply understanding the model, not as sophisticated, plus something that's really pushing the edge. And they'll also can act as like a check on each other. Because you can sort of see like when the bus is on its side or if a book is clearly about romance and this is saying it's science fiction and we have people look at it and it's like, oh, this is science fiction. Then we understand what's going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Very cool. Well, if anybody wants to find out how this story ends, Data Science Go 2019, end of September in San Diego. That's where you can catch Kevin. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Kevin, on, uh, you mentioned neural networks. What's your view in terms of like the work you guys do? There's a lot of, um, especially in the part of understanding the content, I'm assuming there's a lot of working with text and um, uh, language processing. What is your view on neural networks versus machine learning approaches? I think that for the most part, they complement each other and that really neural networks uses a lot of machine learning. Mm -hmm. so they're not these like separate worlds of things. Like w when you're setting up a, a neural network, people have kind of said it's, it's much more like differentiable programming. Like you're, it's like a config file especially mm -hmm. if you're working with Curious, you're sort of setting up, okay, like what are my activation units? Like how many layers do I want? You know, you're deciding these things and it's like, what are you deciding when you're thinking about this? Okay, well, you're thinking about maybe a linear model or a logistic model in terms of how you want to represent a thing. The difference is that what you're thinking about is one part of the model. You're not thinking about the whole model anymore. So mm -hmm. the neural network kind of takes all of that, right? It adds its hidden layers and it does extra things that aren't really represented here, but you're kind of guiding it. So you're more of a guide rather than like, oh, running logistic regression, you know, I learn these features, however I learn them, right? And I put them in the model and it gives me something very interpretable, right? Mm -hmm. Outputting probabilities, which are very understandable and that's what the model is versus neural networks, just trying to kind of like map something really probably nonlinear and understanding that without, it doesn't, it's not gonna give you that nice interpretability mm -hmm. component yet, um, but it uses the same sort of, I would say mathematical approaches under the hood, right? And then it, it kind of adds on its own layer. So I, th I think that like, like I was saying, they, they really complement each other and there's no kind of like, this is better than this. It just depends on the use case. And the truth is in industry, most of the time you don't actually need like anything neural networks. And I, like I was saying, it's better to stay on like the old stuff that people have proven out that works really well that you can actually communicate with. Mm -hmm. Because it's really hard to talk to somebody about neural networks given like there, it's like all of the machine learning stuff combined into this other box and then sort of put that inside another box and then you kind of ship that out. And then people ask you, well, how did this decision get made? And you don't really have a good answer for them. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if you're using, you know, random forests or logis logistic or linear regression, you can say something much more confident about, oh, hey, this is how this model made this policy or this decision. And I really understand, you know, what that means and what it's trained on. We can debate if that's right or wrong. And this is how we got there that doesn't exist with neural networks. So that's why I think they're a balance uh, when you think about traditional machine learning uh, techniques. Um, same thing, right, with support vector machines, right? Given it's a margin with classifier, it's you pretty much understand how it's making these decisions. Whereas with something like neural networks, you, you really, like that's kind of the core thing today you don't. I think in the future, people are gonna sort of break through that wall and we will understand these decisions uh, well enough anyway, that people will get much more confidence uh, in, in the models. Because that, that's proving to be increasingly important as these things get incorporated, like right, doing facial recognition for all sorts of use cases. When they're doing, you know, when a model is impacting sentencing guidelines, you really want to have a lot of interpretability behind that model. Mm -hmm. These are things that I definitely worry about that people use these kinds of tools without understanding like, oh, wow, people, there is a lot of... Uh, ambiguousness between how this model is working. And there's lots of opportunities for this to go awry mm -hmm. when you don't have a good kind of interpretability and a good transparency layer. And I think that's sort of a big thing for data science in general is to get much better at that, especially as data science permeates all parts of business and culture. People want to know, hey, how did this happen? If we're going to like delegate this to an algorithm, how did it make the decision? And in the past, it was just, if we can make a good decision, then we'll go do it. But in the future, it's like, if we can make a good decision that we can explain and people will agree with it, we'll go do it. 
and sometimes we'll make a less good but perhaps more societally fair decision that people agree with and we'll have the ability to to you know adjust the knob and do that whereas today we may not mm -hmm. and that, that whole explainable ai concept is becoming more of a trend we're seeing that even this year more questions are being raised more companies or agencies government agencies including are asking the question like is this explainable ai is it do we know how it's making these decisions because as you mentioned um with data science becoming more and more part of our daily lives and society there's so much that can go wrong in terms of um, recognition of even facial recognition and uh, any kind of associated uh, racism that can be incorporated in that or sexism. And once, when, you, when you can explain how the model works, you can pinpoint that. When you can't explain, then you've got a whole different kind of worms that you got to open. And, the, and that, a lot of it also comes, especially in neural networks, comes from like labeled data, right? Like the AI might be, the neural network is uh, just the architecture is very neutral, but then the data that was labeled already has some kind of bias or it has some sort of discrimination in it. And then the AI learns that and try, try go in there and make it unlearn that if you, if you can't get, if you don't know which neuron response correlates to which uh, features, it's pretty insane. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that is, yeah, that's a great point that the, the algorithms are just representing the bias. And when we have bias in society, that is represented in the data sets. And the algorithms don't, they're like, they're immoral. They don't know that that's not the ideal outcome. They actually think that's the outcome they're supposed to learn and reinforce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you got that whole trend. Have you seen those uh, images when people take like a stop sign and they put some stickers on it and the self-driving car doesn't recognize it as a stop sign anymore? Uh, I have not, but that does not surprise me at all because yeah. I see those self-driving cars around San Francisco all the time and they are, they really struggle. No, oh, wow. Like, uh, where is it? Um, cause I haven't been in San Francisco for a while. What, what, uh, company is that, uh, through, uh, Uber, Typ the self-driving Ubers? Typically uh, what I'm seeing are the, uh, cruise vehicles. Okay. Well, what do they do? Um, so cruise, I think GM bought cruise. And oh, so, okay, gotcha. it's a, like a also transportation company. Right, right. So they have SUVs driving around San Francisco with a ton of sensors and they're logging an incredible number of miles in the city. And you can see how much they struggle at like intersections. And if like a bike goes by them, they're like suddenly swerving. And you're just like, this is technology is not ready. Like people talk about, you know, we can, you know, level five in like 10 years. I'm like, level five is just like, we can't even think about that. Mm. <laughs> like this is these cars are just, they're not ready. I mean, I, I get it. Urban environments are really hard, but the core thing is you just, you can't learn everything in advance. And I think that's where we're just kind of pushing the current limits of what we have with vision and AI is that we're trying to, right? We're trying to have incredible LIDAR that can respond super fast instead of a general, you know, intelligence that understands how to value different objects. And these cars can't do that. So they treat like a cat, the same as a bicyclist, the same as a semi truck. It's just an object mm -hmm. and there's no association or like learning with it. Now I'm sure that's changing. I think that's kind of the key problem is until you do that, then you're going to react the same to a cat or a squirrel that you are going to react to a semi truck, which is a problem. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is if you just had like a whole network and it was all autonomous, then you would be, you'd be kind of fine. Like the machines could do weird things, but you'd figure out how to solve that when you're interacting those with humans. Mm and the machines don't have a way of relating to the humans, then you get all these like new problems. Like my favorite one was they had to make the uh, driving system more aggressive at intersections in California because we all do the rolling stop, especially in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So the car would just sit there waiting for its turn to go. Mm -hmm. And it would never go because there was never a point where all four cars came to a 100% complete, uh, complete stop. Uh, okay, gotcha. Okay, the yeah, the <laughs> okay, because it's like, yeah, the rules are kind of different. It's following strict rules, whereas humans are uh, more flexible with the rules, I guess. Right. We think about the spirit of the rule, like, are we, you know, causing harm and try to interpret that within the context of the situation? Like, is it sunny or raining or am I surrounded by bikers or little kids? Whereas literally the machines, they don't have any of that context. They're just like, this is the rule. If the speed limit is this and it says this, then I do this. Yeah. Wow. Okay.
Very, very <laughs> interesting observation. <laughs> it must be, must be pretty scary judging these cars. <laughs> it is. It is. Sometimes it concerns me to think that they are actually going to like try to like have that ready to go. Mm -hmm. I think that they do have some in uh, maybe it's in Arizona, but it's like on kind of like a closed track where they know exactly, you know, what the variables are going to be. And that works fine. Mm -hmm. It's just urban environments are really hard, even for human drivers who have mm -hmm. a lot of experience. They're very challenging. So for machines, they're, they're incredibly difficult um, because the number of things you have to learn each second, it, you know, it, it changes every second. Yeah. Well, you know, technology, data, it's interesting to see how they're coming. Like data is becoming more and more recognized as something that's driving business. And uh, these two things, technology and data, are coming closer together. They've always been propelling one another, but now uh, we're trying to use data everywhere where we can and uh, technology as well. Um, and what I noticed about your background is that it looks like you've changed careers very consciously, I would say, that you've selected different companies or different roles in data science to work, but they've never been like along the same line, let's say developing self-driving cars or um, in, in the case of Scrib, like uh, working with a recommender system or understanding content. It feels like you've moved around the space quite a bit. Can you comment on that? Like why, why these choices of roles and careers? Were you searching for something? Did you consciously decide on what you want to learn next before progressing further? Right. So I think it's easy to look back historically and like, and see a narrative. Mm. I'll say at the time it was really kind of like an exploration. You can think of it much more like a gradient descent, right? I'm taking these steps, some of them good, some of them not as good and just learning and gathering more information. And they're all really valuable steps because I know if I'm walking up the hill or down the hill and what they've kind of given me in aggregate is this really unique view of like all of the different parts of the system in terms of how companies actually can use data science, right? How we think about this idea of a full stack data scientist kind of comes from my past experience of seeing, well, okay, well, somebody can't ingest this data, right? Then there's no data science. If you don't have good data that's clean, then you spend all your time doing that. And so you spend very little time applying it to a model. And so these are the kind of the key systems of like, oh, if you can't deploy your model, then you're just beholden to another group and you're not like a data science business unit. You're not shipping product. You're just, you're really more of a support function if you're constantly bound by somebody else to go put your, the thing that you made into a product that really limits your, your scope and your ability. And so that's kind of what I've sort of seen across my experience, across all these organizations getting to see how different organizations treat data science. And it's really kind of a key thing that like you have an organization that the executives believe in data science. They believe that you can use, you know, experimentation and machine learning, not just to make the product better, but to be the product. And that's mm -hmm. something that I've very much seen ha like has to come from the top. Mm -hmm. And when it does, it makes your life much, much easier. And the company is on board and you're kind of like, you're pushing the edge more than just trying to say, this is why we should exist. So kind of having my experience in hindsight has given me a lot of these like really unique perspectives going forward as I'm building, I kind of just thought like, this is a really interesting opportunity. Like, let's try this. Let's try this. I didn't like really see how it was going to connect. Mm -hmm. Looking back, I can kind of see that it's been a really nice connection by working at these different companies, seeing different approaches, how all of this works together, seeing different organizational structures where you have it really sp split up where data science doesn't have access to any systems and how like limiting and, you know, suboptimal that is for a data science group to have that those restrictions. Whereas if you think about the other side of like, well, what if they have engineers and with data scientists and they're shipping product, that is like really where you want to be for every data science team. Because mm -hmm. then you get really to this true full stack data science org that can ship product, that can support teams, that can do whatever it needs to do within the business, what, rather than having something that's very like kind of boxed in into its very specific niche. And it does that. And maybe it does it really well and creates a ton of value for the business. But it's, in my opinion, it's always going to be suboptimal to structure it that way. How would you advise somebody who's looking from without an organization, so from externally and maybe looking for a job or looking to uh, 
move into that organization, change careers. How would you recommend for a person like that to determine the answer to that question? Is uh, data science seen by the executive as a product or not? Because when you're inside, it might be quite obvious, but when you're outside and you're trying to understand if this is the right company for you to work in, it might be difficult to see. That's a great question. And I think that it is always going to be difficult to judge something like that from the outside. Mm. What you can do are like little, you have to sort of like look for signals, kind of build your own pattern recognition system Mm -hmm. and ask questions, really simple things like, do they have a blog? Mm -hmm. Does it get updated? Is the company, like are any executives talking about, you know, data science or machine learning in any public interviews ever? Do they have, you know, maybe a chief data officer or a VP of data science? If you're able to talk to people, if you're in the interview process and you're talking to someone who's maybe director, executive level, what do they think about data science? Like how do they think it's driving the business and really listen to like how they answer that question and what they say, like, do they have a vision? Have they thought about it at all? Or is this like, we don't know, we want you to come in and do it and we're open how they answer those questions will tell you a lot about how the organization views it. Most people will, you know, be pretty honest there and say, okay, we really think that this, you know, this will help us increase our lead generation by three X for our business. If we're B2B SaaS and that's, you know, more money and that's how we see it. And that's the end of our data science at the company. Mm -hmm. And so then you can make your own decision once you get that. So I think it's really kind of being able to talk to somebody from a more senior leadership uh, position and getting good answers on like, have they thought about this deeply and they actually believe in it or they see everybody and they just want to hire it. Cause it's usually pretty clear when someone's trying to hire a data scientist because they think they should have a data scientist and yet they have no idea what the data scientist will do. They won't actually be able to tell you what any of the projects are, any of the vision is for data science in that job unit or what have you. So I think those are kind of the key sort of signals you can kind of start parsing out and you can also just sort of like ask people how, you know, the stru- how the teams are organized. So is it in engineering, which might be really important at a smaller company? Is it in product? Is it in marketing? Is it in finance? I've seen all of these structures. They mean really different things for the data science group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are, is the data science group totally decentralized and everybody's embedded within a specific team? That's a really different data science experience rather than like joining a data science team and then working, you know, within uh, different areas of the business. So I think all of these things are areas you can look for and questions you can ask to try, try to suss that out. I love what you mentioned about the decentralized embedded data science team where you've got data scientists or machine learning engineers in different functions of the business versus a um, standalone data science team, something like what you have at Scribd. What would you say are the advantages, disadvantages of either of the approaches? Right. So at Scribd, we would have something approaching a hybrid model of this. Mm-hmm. I think that, so the advantage of having a core data science team is that it really has to think of itself as a business unit and go around and connect itself to the business and understand mm-hmm. what the priorities are and where it can drive value and what, what opportunities exist and then can kind of like track those out into like, near-term, medium-term, long-term initiatives, whereas your long-term initiative is like trying to, you know, ship really, you know, de- you know, exciting state-of-the-art products. And then short-term is something very clearly defined. Maybe working with GBM, you can re-rank something better or represent something better with some vision that's already been solved using a pre-trained model. And you know you can ship that in a month and help the business in this way. And, but so the kind of key thing right there is you have to go align yourself really tightly with the business. When you're embedded, it's really easy to say, okay, well, a product manager brought a roadmap or somebody brought a roadmap and we're executing on it. And you told me to like build this algorithm and so I'm going to go build it. And so we have a recommendation system and we, you know, we're going to try to like make it 3% better rather than asking if we even have the right system and then taking three to six months to rebuild it, which is what you're going to get from the business unit approach. Whereas the embedded approach is much more likely to be iterative. Just, and now that is obviously going to be, there's going to be other factors in there, but that's sort of what I've seen is that it drives this iterative approach. Mm-hmm. which makes it harder to make bigger gains. It's certainly valuable for the business uh, to have, you know, iterative gains in the near term. However, it kind of limits your ability longer term to sort mm-hmm. of go after bigger 
opportunities. And when you, when you say you have a hybrid model, at mm-hmm. Scribd, what do you mean by that? Right. So when we have a hybrid model at Scribd, we have data scientists that are embedded on product facing squads as well as search and recommendations. So they work with those squads really tightly. So those squads have roadmaps. Mm. So they are doing some of the iterative thing. And what we're doing now is to really pair that more with like, well, let's drive roadmap. Let's think how we can kind of reimagine the system instead of just making an existing system we inherited a little bit better. And maybe we can actually make it a lot better. Mm-hmm. However, we're still working within the constraints of that system without, you know, really deeply questioning if that system should exist, which just is that, like I said, is a function of being embedded. In Toronto, we're really focusing on the more business unit type approach. and want to bring that approach to San Francisco as well. So we we're really thinking about how to reimagine the system in addition to driving iterative improvements. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very useful information, especially for business owners or executives listening to this. Would you say there's a kind of like a threshold when a company should maybe, for instance, as a smaller firm, as a smaller organization, a startup start with the embedded approach and then at some threshold switch over to the core data science team approach or the standalone data science team approach? Would you say there's a time in the life of any business when that should happen or this really depends on the type of business nature of uh, the industry? It depends on the business. My personal view is that going to the business unit sooner is always going to be better. Mm-hmm. The trade-off with that is you don't get the really like embedded focus that that brings. And if you're trying to ship something, say you're a startup and you need to you know raise your next round, you need to hit very specific goals in the next six months, the embedded unit can really help you align everybody really clearly, assuming you already know it needs to happen. When you're in much more of the greenfield space, it, the embedded units are hard, it's harder for them to deliver that kind of work, especially from the data science side, because data scientists really kind of shine when they're working with other data science consistently and bouncing mm-hmm. their ideas off and thinking about things that are like outside of the, ba- the bounds of what, you know, people are envisioning of the next version. So that's what, where it just becomes like, you could have a product manager who totally gets data science and they can do that in that model and it works and you don't actually need this. You can get the same gains that you would get. What I've seen practically is that there's not very many people like that. Mm-hmm. And so depending on your organization, what you're solving for, there is kind of like a point where you want to think, okay, when am I getting enough out of the data science team? And so if not the kind of the business unit approach and that it's important to pair that approach with a full stack approach. So it's data scientists, engineers, whoever they need to ship their product, maybe in your company, it's front end engineers and designers, they should have it and mm-hmm. they should be accountable just like a product org. And run it the same way. So it's not, because it's no longer, right, a support function. It's now a unit shipping product that's driving your company forward. And you can't have them sort of constrained by other parts of the organization because then you're not going to really get to see what they can do. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that it's just, a, it's simply a trade-off for the business depending on what you want to achieve. There's not like, oh, you have to do this or you have to do this. It really depends on, on the goals of the business. I'm, I'm always going to say that the business unit is going to be really more powerful. Longer term, it's going to create more value. I feel very strongly about that. Mm-hmm. I think though that in the short term and the medium term, that can be very iffy. And if those are really where the business is focused, it, they can have different, different ways of approaching that. Okay. Gotcha. Thank you for, for that um, overview. Uh, I got an, like a question more of a philosophical question for you. Where do you think, the field of data science is going and what should our listeners prepare for to be ready for the future that's coming in the next three or five years? So I I think we talked about this a little bit earlier where data science is starting to pervade every part of our daily lives. And so people are now asking these big questions about, hey, how does this impact my privacy? How did the model make this decision? So I think privacy and interpretability are going to become increasingly important. I think you see this a little bit with Android and iOS and you can do some on device training or serving depending on how you set it up that can really actually drive user privacy 
and machine learning. Those two things used to be opposed. Now they can be united. Um, I think privacy is generally becoming a big worldwide thing as people realize the value of the data and the value of their privacy that they've just kind of given over to corporations and governments. So they want it back. I don't think that's going away. I think you have things like the blockchain, which is high level, sort of a universal trust and verification system. And it's really exciting to think how can data science, you know, intersect with that? Can we actually write contracts with Ethereum that are like socially enforceable and build models and have all of these sort of units served where we have general ledgers of trust? And, you know, where does data science play in that? Like, how can we sort of like think about what kind of society we want to have and what data science can enable within that. So these are kind of really big questions for us to ask. Cause I think the models, right. It's sort of the both, like they're already there and the incredible thing, they, things they can do. And they're really far away. And the things that we think that get hyped a lot, like actual, ha actually having autonomy and self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. So computer vision is still very, very early. And I think that it's going to get deployed in a lot more situations where it's actually making decisions right, for classifying people where it's probably not ready. And that's just going to happen. And so the best thing that we can do is to like really push the interpretability so people can say, oh, it's, it's kind of clear this algorithm isn't ready, but we can pair it with humans. Like that's what a lot of businesses that, you know, use AI do. They pair it with, you know, huge amounts of people labeling the data and evaluating the decisions the model made and understanding if it's right. We need to continue to do that same thing as it gets out into society in general everybody needs to be able to like evaluate a model and understand if the decision it made, you know, based on this information is reasonable and have debates about it as it comes into society. So I think that's really exciting um, because, you know, people are now building, you know, compute, you know, you have tensor processing units, but this computer is specifically dedicated for serving and, you know, in some cases training models. And that that's really exciting because most of the limit I think of like, there's, you know, machine learning and neural networks and general AI has really been on the compute. This is like pushing it back to the algorithm. So then you see once that happens, every kind of six months, people are sort of like pushing the state of the art and that's going to continue to happen as long as we don't run into like another compute wall. So I think like the future can be sort of whatever we may make it. It can be a, a dystopian 1984 type situation where we're all getting bound by this facial recognition that we don't know how it works and the government's using it. Or we can create this really incredible future where we can be, you know, revolutionizing how food is grown and how water gets preserved and how we're tackling climate change and data science can move into all of these fields and it should and it can help. We can help people understand what's actually behind all of these decisions and make better allocations of our resources using data science models and using a lot of models that already exist today. It's kind of getting them into government, right? Getting them into these really large companies that move really slowly that's sort of a, a really big piece is kind of the, the pervasiveness as much as pushing the state of the art of data science. So that's really exciting where it can open up new, new implications and new technologies and new products. I think that a lot of, there's also a lot of gains to be made on just per, increasing the pervasiveness of data science among existing industries like schools and governments. And that can have a very large positive effect. Gotcha. So it seems like we've gone full circle here on the podcast that we've come back to the, what we started from that applied data science is, is kind of the answer. Don't just learn data science for the sake of learning data science, but see what impact you can make in the world, whether it's through uh, various industries and exciting projects, or it is through bringing uh, data science to government and society in a very understandable, secure way that respects people's privacy. Absolutely. I think that's a great summary because you can solve a lot of problems with regressions better than they're being solved today. And people can understand those decisions and we can actually improve the world doing that, which is really exciting. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Kevin. This uh, brings us to the end of today's episode. Um, what's, before I let you go, what's uh, the best way for people to contact you, get in touch for your career, um, learn more about what you're doing? So people can follow me on Twitter at CreationKP. We've got a data science blog, Scrib Data Science and Engineering blog on Medium. You know, obviously there's LinkedIn. Feel free to follow me there. Although I don't, I don't post very much material on LinkedIn. And I think those are all great, great places. Gotcha. And uh, obviously people can apply for positions you're 
you're looking to fill on the script website, right? You said. Right. Right. I think you can go to script.com slash jobs and we have some data science openings. You can apply there as well. Fantastic. We'll, we'll share all those links in the show notes. Uh, uh, make sure guys and everybody listening to uh, get in touch with Ken, follow Kevin. And Ken, one more question for you before we finish up. What's a book that you can recommend to our listeners that uh, will help them in their careers or in life? So I recently read Bad Blood, which is about the Theranos founder, Elizabeth Holmes. And I think oh. it's, a really, it's a really incredible book because it, it sort of shows the sort of intersection of building the future and how you can kind of go over the line with that. If you, you, know, you get kind of caught, caught up in your own ego and your own potential too much, uh, building the future is actually really hard. And so when you're doing it with something like healthcare, if you get caught up in those things, you can create very bad outcomes for people. It's kind of a good sort of message for data scientists of like, we can take this incredible tool we have and use it for bad, or we can kind of say, how do we leverage this thing and really kind of think about how we drive, you know, new, amazing systems and strengthen the world in a better way uh, using it. Yeah, I actually watched uh, a documentary about that on the plane recently and indeed extremely interesting and very educational story for for anybody in technology and data science that the things that, as you said, like it can be used for good or for bad and even trying to use it for good, you can get really caught up in um, the promise that it has, the technology, but like sometimes we're not there yet, like with the whole self-driving cars, right? It's, uh, it, we need to navigate our way, way to get there first. Exactly, exactly. Gotcha. Okay, well, Kevin, thanks so much. Looking forward to seeing you in person at Data Science Go. Can't wait. Absolutely. I can't wait either. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was Kevin Perko, head of Data Science at Script. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. I hope you enjoyed uh, the chat that we had. And probably for me, one of the uh, favorite parts was what Kevin mentioned about the different types of data science teams that you can have. You can have a uh, decentralized team where all your data scientists or machine learning experts are embedded within the different divisions of your business, or you can have a centralized team of data scientists, a standalone core data science team, and there are advantages and disadvantages to both, but it's important to understand that it is a conscious decision on how a business should do that. And if you're a business owner or entrepreneur, so that's something to think about. If you're a data scientist, that's also something to think about in the sense like, how does your business do it at the moment? Or how does the business that you're applying for do it? That's a question you might wanna ask at an interview to understand better what your role is gonna be about. If you enjoy this conversation with Kevin, I am 100% sure you're going to enjoy his keynote at Data Science Go 2019. So if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, head on over to www.datasensego.com and join us this September 27, 28, 29 in San Diego. Wonderful city, wonderful conference. Get to network with Kevin. Lots of other amazing, insightful speakers. We have over 30 speakers attending. Um, and of course, we're going to have between 600 and 800 data scientists coming to Data Science Go. You don't want to miss this opportunity to expand your network. We've had people fly all the way from Brazil on 27 hour flights, on uh, 20 plus hour flights from Europe uh, in the previous years. So uh, distance is not an excuse. I look forward to seeing you at Data Science Go and networking with you personally. On that note, thank you so much for being here today and I'll see you next time. Until then, happy analyzing.